Craig Fugate is one of the world's leading experts in emergency and crisis management, having served as President Obama's FEMA administrator. During his tenure, he led the agency through more than 500 presidentially declared major disasters and emergencies. He also guided U.S. assistance in international disasters such as the earthquake in Haiti and the Fukushima nuclear meltdown in Japan. Today, he discusses the administration's crisis management of the COVID-19 pandemic, what has been done, and what should be done going forward. Let's listen in. I know Craig has some formal remarks to share with us, but I, I, I have one question, Craig, um, that I'd love you to address either take your comments or get to the question answer, which is as a guy who's made this his life's work um, dealing with this, how do, you, how, would you, how, do you, how do you feel about how we're handling it? And more importantly, whether you would like to be in the action. With that, I'll let you go. Well, it's too slow for my taste. And um, I think one of the challenges, and I'm gonna talk about, not specifically about what FEMA's doing, um, or why they're doing it. I'm not there, so I really can't comment. But I think we need to understand that pandemics as a disaster response is fundamentally different and why it's different and why it's a different challenge. If you think about really big disasters like Hurricane Katrina, uh, the, the hurricanes in 2017, Maria in Puerto Rico, all of these disasters, including 9-11, have always been geographically focused disasters. They hit one part of the country. And that meant we could move resources from non-impacted areas to the area of impact, and you could concentrate resources from non-impacted states and federal government. Pandemics, and there's another type of disaster very similar, I think we should also be paying attention to the lessons we're learning here, are cyber attacks of national significance. They are not geofenced. There is no boundary or border of how far the earthquake went or how where the tornado hit or where the hurricane hit. A pandemic, by definition, once it's transmittable from human to human or zoonotic going from uh, a vector like mosquitoes or, or, or uh, animals to people, once that begins, if you don't have the ability to contain it, you literally are having to prepare for all 50 states, territories, not maybe simultaneously the same week, but in the same time frame. And it's, it, it means that where we were always able to bring resources from one part of the country to the other, we're very limited in that. Because as you saw, yeah, Seattle, uh, San Francisco, and the Valley uh, were early. Then you saw New York become the, the, the hot spot. Now you're watching it emerge in places like New Orleans, Miami, and other places where it's now picking up rapidly even though we may be a little bit flatter over on the West Coast in some areas, we're still seeing rapid increases in other parts of the country. So the pandemic planning that we had started back with H1N1, and this actually goes back to President Bush 43. He was really the first president to make pandemic planning a big issue and was actually driving this in his administration. Uh, concerns of looking back to things like the Spanish or actually better termed the 1918 pandemic, the influenza pandemic that occurred. Um, some history that we had seen in other events. So as the Obama administration looked at this, we, we were wrestling with H1N1, the race between how bad it would be before we had a deployable vaccine. And fortunately for the US, H1N1 was not as bad as it could have been. But our planning was similar to what we're seeing play out in COVID-19 that it would hit all of the states rather simultaneously. There would be a lot of shortfalls 
and it would also start impacting things beyond the healthcare system. Uh, we had not envisioned, and I don't think nobody had really thought through that sheltering in place would going on in some cases with indeterminate amounts of time, that that was going to impact infrastructure and other things. We were more concerned about the employees being sick than just being in isolation. That being said, that leads to the other challenge, and that is, for whatever reason, there's been this focus on the, the what they call the national stockpile. And these were basically pharmaceutical and medical equipment that was designed to deploy in certain types of events. Their history actually goes back to the sarin gas attack in Tokyo, because what was quickly evident was most hospitals and most communities were not set up for large numbers of chemical casualties with nerve agents. Uh, atropine, TUPAM, and other drugs just weren't really that prevalent. And the other concern was with uh, a bioterrorist attack like anthrax, you could quickly overwhelm a local community's availability for antibiotics, uh, particularly the first round drugs they were using with Cipro. So the history of this was, it was really about pharmaceuticals, about drugs, treatment protocols, antibiotics, and it, where we did have vaccines for a chemical attack or a biological attack, probably in a major metropolitan area, maybe several metropolitan areas, but again, it would not be the whole nation. That had continued to evolve with disasters like Katrina and other concerns to add more capability for what we saw after 9-11, which was burn, blast, and crush injuries. Uh, most people don't know this, but the number of survivors from the Pentagon with severe burns generally almost all the way past the Mississippi occupied almost all available burn beds. There were short run shortages for a lot of the gear you need to take care of critical burn patients. There weren't just there weren't enough beds in the burn units to take them all initially. They were having to basically triage people out. And there was a huge run on uh, skin grafts. And so the kits were then upgraded to include now med, more med surgical, uh, more capabilities to treat blast uh, type injuries, burn injuries, crush injuries that we would see both from a terrorist attack, but crush injuries are very common in earthquakes. And we then began adding more PPE to this. But it was always based upon these packages were designed to respond to one part of the country, like a New York City or a Chicago or an Atlanta, and maybe several cities at the same time. So these stockpiles were around the country uh, because they had a lot of controlled substances in them, as well as uh, stockpiles of very short supply type drugs. Uh, those sites have always been kept uh, close hold. They're not generally published out. You can't go on a map and look up where they're at. But the knowledge of them and the purpose of them was always to support local healthcare systems that were being overwhelmed in that type of event. So as we got into COVID-19, our planning had always envisioned FEMA as a support agency. Uh, our job would be to support the lead federal agencies. In this case, our assumption was that it was CDC and the rest of HHS and that we would also be supporting the governors for the non-health impacts of a pandemic. Uh, our thinking was that health agencies at CDC would be working with their counterparts in the states. And because CDC had a lot of funds, particularly when we were planning for H1N1, Congress basically appropriated a lot of money for HHS to pass on to the states to avoid duplication. We would focus on the non 
CDC funded activities, which were mainly going to be focused around testing, vaccinations, uh, monitoring, and, and epidemiological uh, tracing, things like that. And that FEMA would support governors for collateral impacts, such as disruptions to infrastructure, uh, overtime costs for law enforcement, fire, and others. Uh, what we would generally refer to as what we call protective measures. Because unlike a physical hazard, like an earthquake or a tornado, you don't end up with a lot of structural damages. A lot of the things that FEMA tends to take care of for the uninsured losses wouldn't be required in a pandemic, but you could see some extraordinary costs for protective measures, including everything uh, and to things that you rather not think about, but disaster mortuary services and other things. As we got into this, it was the worst case scenario because <clears throat> we had gone through preparing and looking at SARS. Fortunately, SARS was not that easily transmitted, but it was a very uh, dangerous virus. Uh, it was a coronavirus. We saw MERS coming out of the Middle East. Again, we were fortunate that uh, the pilgrimage to Mecca did not bring that back and explode as was concerned. It was not as transmittable, uh, but again, was a very dangerous coronavirus. We dealt with Ebola, and Ebola was, again, not an airborne disease. It can only be really transmitted by contacting body fluid. And if you can remember the political noise around the decision to bring uh, patients back from Africa, U.S. citizens, U.S. nationals back, uh, who did have exposure to Ebola or had Ebola, and the concern that this was going to widespread everywhere, we did have some transmission from healthcare workers but it was limited. It did not explode out there. The concern in pandemic planning had been something like a more virulent flu that was deadlier than our normal seasons or coronavirus, which happened to be one of the uh, routine suspects of if we had a, a COVID or a coronatype virus that was more transmittable by airborne and was more dangerous than what we had seen in previous events, that would be the problem. And it was always this characteristic of a disease that was that was highly infectious. It didn't take a lot of viruses and was very contagious, particularly airborne. That was the concern for the next pandemic. So this is where this is where I, you don't know because I'm not inside. But our planning would have been that as soon as CDC started getting intel, and again, there's a lot of finger pointing about who told who when or what, but but honestly, for the Chinese, they were more forthcoming this time than they were in SARS. But as soon as you knew you had something that was now transmittable by airborne, and we had had lots of travel in the area before we knew this, that should have sent all the flags back up. Because if you think about COVID-19, the initial wave of this hit the affluent first. People that could do international travel, people that had done international travel, interacted with other people through airports, and then people who were doing cruises who somehow got crossed up with either having come from those provinces or had been near somebody had come back. But this was one that was spread by air travel. This was not spread through the food supply. This was not spread on packages coming in from China. This physically took people who were infected, getting on planes, and traveling throughout the world. And because we did not have adequate testing when in the states, just shutting down China, travel from China missed a big picture. They should have been looking at, and this is, this is all hindsight, but we should have been thinking about not just people coming from China to the United States, 
but where people had traveled through nodes where people had gone through the province, whether it was, you know, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, it turned out that a lot of the cases in New York were actually coming from travelers who had come through Europe. So just shutting down travel to China wasn't going to cure this. You had to look at the entire international travel pattern and start looking for where this was going. And because we did not have testing early, which sometimes is a result of until you have samples of disease to do your testing and build your test, that can delay you. So we ended up in a situation by the time we realized that COVID had already made it here. We started seeing this on cruise ships. We started seeing this at conferences where people were going, coming back and getting COVID that for all practical purposes in the U.S., we had lost containment. And that should have been another red flag that our push packages for pandemics, these national stockpiles are just that. They're only push packages. They're not set up or designed to sustain the type of PPE that would be required, nor other tools to begin the production of these things, those should have been started very early. In, in the Obama administration, quite honestly, there's always a lot of debate about the role of PPE and the ability for the commercial sector to supply that. But early on, they should have recognized that this was basically a two-tier response. The stockpiles were only meant to be the initial push. They weren't meant to cover everything. They buy you time for the hot spots. And then very large orders should have been placed. And if there was no certainty that the commercial sector could not meet that demand, then you should have gone to the Defense Production Act, which one would put the federal government at the front of the line. This is why you're hearing states saying FEMA stealing our stuff we're trying to buy. Well, one of the first tools in the Defense Production Act, it gives federal government primacy for buying anything. And I'll give you an example of this. When we were responding to Superstorm Sandy in the uh, Northeast, because of all the languages spoken in the New Jersey, New York metropolitan areas, we didn't have enough interpreters. And most interpreters were already engaged and already had contracts. And we used Defense Production Act to go in there and break contracts to be able to hire interpreters so we could talk to people and figure out how to help them or allow them to register for assistance. So it does give the ability to the federal government to jump to the front of the line. But the other part, the most powerful part, which is the one that was uh, still, I'm not even sure how much of this has been implemented, is the fact that you can direct manufacturing and supplies to produce things that the federal government says, you will now stop whatever you're doing and you're going to make this and take control of supply chain and manufacturing. Because a lot of our PPE and other things have been outsourced, their overseas production, we now find ourselves competing with the international community for this. And we're trying to ramp up domestic production. And we put our healthcare workers in the untenable situation where they don't have adequate PPE in some areas. They're having to reuse PPE. They're not able to follow all the protocols. And we're seeing a lot of the healthcare uh, workers now uh, being exposed. And we're now you know, reporting the, the loss of life from healthcare professionals who are caring for patients and healthcare professionals that have become sick uh, and no longer can, you know, can continue to work. This, you know, you would like to go back and said there was a point in time that if we had done something different, we could have changed the outcome. The problem with that is it's still not addressing what we're going to be doing tomorrow. 
So where we're at right now is FEMA has uh, been given the task to coordinate this and coordinate PPE, which was not their primary role. Their primary role was consequence. This was a role we would assume that HHS was having. So FEMA, I think rather late in the process, was given this job. And as I reminded people, FEMA cannot manage what it don't have. Those stockpiles were finite and they're going to run out. So they began looking at purchasing. They're doing a lot of other things. I think the most successful thing that they're doing right now is they're referring to this as an air bridge. But what they're able to do now is contract directly with production in China and contract for aircraft to now start flying it in. And those, those are picking up. It's still almost like the fire brigade. You're flying it in at a rate less than what it's being needed. But it is increasing the amount of PPA we are getting from China but it is bypassing the entire medical uh, uh, supply chain. Uh, so it is, uh, as I tell people, the Defense Production Act is a very blunt instrument. It's not very responsive. And one of the challenges, and, and, and I can sympathize why this decision may have been hard to make. Even in our administration, there were oftentimes debates on when to use the DPA. Uh, a lot of people felt, well, we need to exhaust all these other things before we turn it on. And what I had learned a long time ago is by the time you know you need something, it's late. And the Defense Production Act is not that responsive. So as we have been going through this, I think this is also some of the conversations and discussions about <clears throat> governor's request and trying to triage where stuff is going, how much should go out the door based upon actual cases. And then saying, well, governors are asking for stuff they don't need. Well, here's what we've seen. There's only been a couple of parts of the country that were aggressive early and were able to flatten the curve. Flatten the curve does not mean this is over. It just means it's going a little bit slower and the patient load is more manageable. But in those places where we did not do those things, it exploded. And what we saw was by the time you started seeing the first patients get to the emergency room, that wave was building. And that if you're waiting for confirmation that you had confirmed cases, it was too late. Uh, look at what we saw in New York. It took about two, almost three weeks from social distancing really to start changing the numbers of who was coming in and how many people were coming into the hospitals. The death rate really hasn't come down but at least it's not climbing as fast as it was. But that's our lag time for the time you implement social distancing and how extensive it is and how well it is followed. It's generally about a two to three week lag before you actually see it impacting the numbers of people that are getting sick. And so if you see across the South where um, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm very Southern and I work for Republicans and Democrats and half the time they don't know what party I'm in, which is fine with me. I like to say, welcome to the South, where ignorance is a virtue for elected leaders, because we've got people that literally the White House has been calling them. They've had the Surgeon General calling them to say, you need to do this. And they're going, well, we don't have a lot of cases and we're different and we're more unique. And we're watching places like Florida where it's skyrocketing. We're, we're seeing in other states where you didn't have a lot of cases last week. Now the cases are increasing. And even if you do social distancing, think about it, a two to three week lag time between the time you implement social distancing before you start to flatten your curve. Um, and this is this is the last thing I want to kind of cover and then open up questions. 
one of the interesting things I do, I do work on the West Coast. I work for a company, One Concern, so we're right in Menlo Park in the middle of the valley. And I had been out there about two weeks before the, the, the first real uh, definitive that we did have cases in the States. <clears throat> There's a, <clears throat> a lot of evidence that we were having cases before that, uh, that we're, we're now kind of working backwards, particularly as we can start testing for antibodies. I think we're going to find that COVID-19 was actually in a lot of communities weeks or maybe a month before we had our first official case. And what was interesting was, and I'm in the conference public speaking business, all of a sudden conferences, because we saw a couple of conferences where people were getting exposed, started shutting down. And particularly in the tech world, faster than just about any other organizations, South by Southwest, you name it, these conferences were coming to a screeching halt. The next thing you saw was the tech companies from Microsoft all the way down to Facebook, Apple, and everybody in between began telling their employees to work from home. This is before you have any public health orders to do social distancing. They were already moving in that direction. And I think that put Washington and the Valley in a much different position than most of the country because it was interesting. The social distancing was being led by the major employers, not by government saying you need to do this. Uh, if you look in California and you get down to L.A., although they've been doing a lot of social distancing, L.A.'s numbers are coming up. San Francisco is staying fairly consistent. So we know that the earlier we do this, and I think, again, this is kind of a unique situation that doesn't occur in a lot of other parts of the country. But because you're a lot of your major employers and brand names that working from home was actually possible for their type of enterprise. They didn't have to have people in physically doing work that probably put them in better position. But it also showed us the earlier we did this and the more widespread it is, the better we are at flattening that curve. Because you can't tell me what that Seattle and San Francisco if they hadn't have done that, would still have their numbers. They would have looked like a New York. So summation, our plans were always to early detection and, and, and containment. There was uh, a delay there. We didn't have testing. And, and this was spreading by air travel and moving faster than I think people realized. And you kept looking for who came from China? You didn't look at where did people travel from those areas and the fact that people were traveling all over the world. And so while we focused on China, we had people coming in from Europe. And once you have those people interfacing in very dense populated areas, it will spread rapidly. Again, some of the stuff we have learned as we've seen more cases you know, initially it was said this wouldn't be as bad as the flu. Turns out it's much deadlier than the flu. Uh, we heard it wouldn't be as easy to transmit. Turns out it's much more transmittable. Probably about the only thing that will spread faster and is easier to transmit is the measles. Uh, and so for a variety of reasons, we are where we're at. And the question I get is, what do I see as the end of this? Uh, and this is where I think it's a very dangerous thing to think this is the flu season. If you now flu seasons work, we'll go up and up and up and we'll peak and then we'll start coming down and we get down to a point and it's over. We don't see that with COVID-19 as long because remember this, here's, here's the only way that COVID-19 moves in our society. People are the vector. There is no other known reservoir for this virus. 
So as long as people have the virus, and as long as it is still able to spread from person to person, even at much smaller numbers, if we lift our containment because we have peaked and come down, but we have not eliminated that reservoir of people that are infected, and we don't have the ability to test, and we don't have a vaccine, we can see that explode. And again, a lot of people are looking, are we going to see a seasonal drop off because of summertime heat and humidity? And they're not seeing that. And they're, they're very concerned that as long as you have people that are active with the virus, this has the potential to come back if we let up on social distancing too fast or too widespread. And that's going to be the trick. If we don't have a vaccine, we're going to have to have testing. Because if we can test you for antibodies and you got antibodies, you're good to go. If we test you and you don't have it, you're good to go. If we test you and you got it, we got to quit sending people home. We need to put them in these hospitals, isolate them, take care of them. But what the Chinese found by sending people back home to self-isolate, it spread to the family. And it didn't stop. So when we get to the point where we can test adequately, I think that's how we go back and move away from everybody doing social distance to, to aggressively testing. And as people are tested positive or we trace the people they've been exposed to and get them in isolation, I think that's how we move away from everybody having to be uh, in a uh, social distancing mode. It's really a treat to hear from you. Nobody knows more about this stuff than you do. Uh, and in that spirit, uh, you know, I'd like to put on the table a proposition that we're not going to know what to do right in the future unless we have an honest inquest as to what has gone wrong in the past. And let me just put a few things I think I know as an amateur on the table for you to respond to. Number one, there were simulations of pandemics inside the government going back decades that if we'd been paying attention should have alerted us to the sorts of structural problems that we've encountered now that we really have a bad one. That's point number one. Point number two, a series of government reports and blue ribbon panels going back decades suggesting that if a pandemic hit, that we would be desperately short of needed equipment. Point number three, a series of government reports and blue ribbon panels pointing out that even according to the, own, own, uh, the standards that we ourselves had established for the national stockpile, we had not refilled it to the indicated level. Point number four, a whole bunch of countries after SARS and MERS figured out that they needed a much more robust testing regime. As Dr. Fauci has pointed out and acknowledged very honestly, we never drew that lesson. We never set ourselves up to do the kind of testing that is clearly necessary and which we're still scrambling to do. So which part of that story have I gotten wrong? And if I've gotten it right, what are the lessons that we should draw from it? Well, I'll start with the uh, review of this. That's an easy question. Several of the uh, several senators have already put forth. I did an op-ed, several other op-eds. Uh, my feeling is we need a 9-11 commission independent of a congressional hearing 
Otherwise, it's going to get too partisan to get to the very questions of what worked, what didn't work, and what we're going to do next. Well, I wrote that in my Wall Street Journal piece this Wednesday, and I yes, totally no, agree I, with you. I think I think, and I, I know that Senator Harris uh, has put out uh, a call for that. Uh, I've cautioned members of Congress that if they do it internally, it will be partisan and it will be hard to separate uh, opinion from fact. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think there's uniform agreement there. Look, I was part of those exercises. We, I mean, it really was uh, for FEMA a stretch to even think about how you respond to a pandemic. There is online, you can look it up, but FEMA had guidance for pandemic response and using the Stafford Act under emergency declarations. Um, and, and and we 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 saw a real challenge with Ebola of how much PPE we were going through and consuming. And we started looking at the numbers saying, if this doesn't get contained, we're going to have to use Defense Production Act. We, over, we saw with Ebola, which was not going to be as contagious as COVID-19, that it was going to be a problem. And yes, the, store, the stockpile was shorted as well as a lot of states because we went through the Great Recession. Then we had the great experiment called sequestration where we slashed our budgets and couldn't replenish anything. And as we came out of that, the budget deficit had a bigger overriding factor. And so a lot of these programs never came back. If you look at the, pre the pre-sequestration funding that we as a nation were doing after 9-11, we had built a lot of capability at the state level. They had built their own stockpiles. We had grown and enhanced the, uh, the national stockpiles. But with the recession, states started cutting back. Uh, public health got slashed. Local public health got slashed. Mm-hmm. And I remember something that President Bush 43 said. Because everybody's always focused on bioterrorism. He said, if you want to be prepared for bioterrorism, you got to have good public health. If we're not healthy in the first place, bioterrorism is even going to be more devastating. But we got away from that when the budget deficit took control of the narrative. And these were things that weren't immediate. It was something that says, well, if it happens, we'll figure it out when it's going to when it happens, or we'll take care of it then. We've never seen that work. Uh, and in our exercises, we had to look at the Defense Production Act relatively early in any pandemic, just because we knew there would not be enough PPE to go around. Um, so everything you've said is very factual. I think there had always been within the public health community, but also including others. I mean, Lisa Monaco and I, in one of the uh, national security uh, meetings, and she, Lisa was the deputy for Homeland Security. So she had the whole Homeland Security. She succeeded John Brennan when John went to the White House, went to the CIA. And one of our exercises was only on a pandemic. We were looking at influenza as the likely suspect, but it's really applicable to any of these. And internally, I think it was interesting that you still had agencies that kind of took this as, yeah, it's probably not our biggest problem. Uh, We've got other things to worry about. And so you're absolutely right was how do you maintain, I mean, think about it. In my career, we've had two World Health Organization declared pandemics, H1N1 and COVID-19, a lot of distance in between them. Uh, but how do you maintain that focus? And, and, and again, the commission idea I love, but I want to really focus on not who screwed up, but what are we going to do different next time? Because we don't learn those lessons. We're going to be back here when the next one occurs. Which specific medical yardsticks should government officials be considering before deciding to begin dialing back the social distancing guidelines and the business? Testing. So our ability to test is the guideline. That's that's going to be key. Um, if we cannot test, 
Because what we need to move away from right now, we're having to say everybody could potentially be carrying the virus. So we need to keep everybody separated to prevent spread. Because remember, people are the vector. This ain't like mosquitoes biting you and spreading this. You got to have enough proximity for the airborne virus to cross. And we're treating everybody as if they've got the virus. If we can narrow that down and go only people that have the virus have to be quarantined. And anybody that's had immediate contact with them over the last week or so needs to be isolated. We can move from everybody's got to be socially distancing to really focusing on isolating containing. And if you go to places where they had good testing on the front end, like Australia, this is exactly what they've been able to do. So if you look at Australia, again, it's sparsely populated on the outback, but on the East Coast is very densely populated, and they have a lot of large immigrant communities. Their numbers have not exploded, even though they've had early cases. So this will be something that we have to watch and see if it bears out. But where we have seen aggressive early testing and the ability to quickly isolate those folks and contact trace, they have seemed to be able to keep their numbers much lower than what happens when you don't have containment. Look at what happened in Britain. You know, they didn't have the ability to test. It got to the point where it exploded. Now they're trying to play catch up just like we are. This is what happened in Italy and other places. But where they were able to, before they lost containment, they seem to be successful. But the key part of that is the ability to test to determine who needs to be in isolation versus who doesn't. Thank you. Okay, I think Cliff Levine has a question out there. Yeah, my question was, um, thank you. My question was really about um, how we're responding now. And is, is the administration reaching out to outside experts? Do you know, you know, obviously what happened happened, but looking forward, particularly as to how do you test, what's the future look like? How do you model things? Or like have they contacted you for instance? And I'm just curious as to whether there's been any expansion in terms of really bringing in experts and, and trying to solve this problem? Unfortunately, I don't think so, and I don't know. I know the career folks are probably talking to their peers out in the research community and their counterparts and other infectious control research centers. That, that tends not to get tamped down. But at the top level, I don't, I don't see that externally happening. My sense is the people that are actually on the front lines in the field and the people that work in these programs are talking to their counterparts and sharing information. Uh, and there are, there are some folks that are external to the administration that we think the administration is listening to is trying trying to come up with some framework. Well, here's what I found. They're not calling me directly, but we're trying to influence the conversation by our, our you know, going on, you know, doing the, uh, social media stuff, putting out positions, trying to talk about this and hopefully influence where they're going. Uh, but you're already seeing now this bifurcation of the COVID-19 task force within the White House that you're now talking about setting up an economic task force separate from the health and medical, which really makes me kind of nervous. Um, but yeah, this is the whole dynamic with this administration. It, We've never seen anything like it before, and it's hard really to understand. Uh, you could take it very simple. Uh, what you see in the press conferences is what we got. But I also know that there's a lot of dedicated civil service people that are trying to get things done. I just don't know what they're running into uh, as far as their ability to reach out, uh, bounce ideas off, get that input. But within 
the CDC and the National Institute of, you know, of uh, Allergies, Infectious Disease, all stuff, they talk with their counterparts all the time in the research community. And we would expect that's still going. I don't think anybody's going to figure out how to stop that. They still have email. <laughs> amazing. It is amazing. Um, let's go to Steve Kaplan. I know he's got a very interesting question. Steve? There's been a lot of discussion about using advanced cell phone technology combined with GPS to be able to inform people if they've been located near someone who has had uh, who's had the disease. What do you think the role is for this kind of technology and what kind of issues do you think there are regarding privacy? Huge privacy issues, but um, one of the things that I think people forget is we've given public health officers and public health officials in states and local governments tremendous power over our freedoms. Uh, think about it. Who else but the public health office can walk into a restaurant, see a health code violation, and close it without a warrant? So when it comes to diseases, we have historically given enormous powers to public health to quarantine, isolate, track, uh, and deal with these as a public health measure, not as an individual freedom. And if we can take that cell phone data and keep it where it is only identifying that you were in proximity, but not identifying personal information, then I think it's usable. We're already seeing a good application of just cell phone data, not individual phones, but just how many phones were lit up in an area. And you can start using that to track movement and going, okay, if I had, you know, a big, a big party and somebody there now tested positive, how many phones were there and where did they go? Uh, the, the issue, it becomes personal identifiable information is if they decide, okay, I need now to go find that person. I need to turn on that phone number and I need to get their location. You go, they were at this party, they were exposed and we need to get hold of them so we can inform them they've been exposed to isolate themselves, monitor, take their temperature and protect their families. That's I think the, the tricky part of when you start crossing over from just looking at the patterns of cell phones to wait a minute, I got 10 people that were in proximity of somebody who is uh, carrying the virus. I need to go not only where those phones went, I need to know who those phones belong to so we can go call them, go meet with them and say, hey, you may have been exposed. You need to isolate. That's going to freak a lot of people out. But it's no different than what public health officers do right now in the absence of cell phone data. They go and say, who was here? Anybody checked in here? Who had a credit card receipt? What's their address? And they will track down each person to try to figure out. And it's almost like missing person tracing. You take whatever information you have, any personal identifiable information, because the goal here for public health is not the individual, it's the community. And if you have people that are out there spreading disease, it's more important to get them identified, isolated, not just for their own safety, but to protect the community. So. A lot of people are trying to equate civil rights to your normal uh, uh, types of events and the normal protections you have. And it, I think it's a shock to people the extent of the powers the public health service has in state and local governments to protect the entire community, not just the individual rights. I, I think there's going to be an, an educational process that we're, that, that, that's going to be needed because there's a knee-jerk reaction and it's almost generational. The, the younger people I talk to about this seem to have a negative you know, reaction to this immediately. The older people, maybe because we get 
more easily, more severely ill, seem to think, oh, this is a great idea. Um, but I think there needs to be, uh, you know, a, a bipartisan, not along party line discussion of, of these issues and, and how to deal with them and how to protect the public. Well, there is one piece of this that's done by Congress is all of this falls under the classification for the health protection of your information. Like, so every time you go to your doctor, if you want to release your information, you have to sign and get permission for that information to be shared. So as long as they're following that information and keeping it compartmentalized, it won't be like something that's provided to the public or to the media. And this is one of the things the media and I think the public's been pretty demanding us. We want to know who's sick in our community. We want to know their address. No, that's violating their protections under HEPA. We can give you the zip code, but we cannot make it personally identifiable. So although public health officials may be able to use your cell phone to track you down, they also have to protect that information just like any other health information. So it will be seen by some people as an invasion of privacy, but I think there's also some protections there to keep that from becoming public information. Make it voluntary. You'll get you'll get tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, because my personal information is not nearly as important as ending this. But I, it's not for me to speak. Let's go over to Andy Gottsman, who has a question. Andy, you out there? Hey, Craig. I'm from New Jersey. How are you? Good. So my question has to do with coming back to what Bill was asking about. You know, how do we make sure we don't screw this up in the future. So it seems like a lot of this has been state by state, very patchwork. And you spoke to that a little bit during your remarks. And in my opinion, states are great for lots of things, but it's been a disaster through this. Um, I guess my first question is, um, do you agree with that? And, and if you do, what are the political um, forces that need to take place to make this more centralized in the future? Well, here's our problem. Our founding fathers never designed this government to be efficient. They Agreed. built it to be resilient. And part of our constitutional construct is reserving for the states and the people the rights not reserved to the federal government. So there is this tendency that whenever we have really big disasters and we don't have a uniform response at the state levels, that we go, well, we need to have the federal government take over. Do you really want this federal government to take over? I, in this particular pandemic, I would much rather have a centralized so response. You'd rather have Governor Como subservient to the president for what was happening in New York, your neighbor? I would rather not have discussions about whether New Hampshire and Rhode Island are going to quarantine people from New York and hospitals are going to get. But uh, what, what, what we had envisioned was it's not a perfect system, but it's a very resilient system. Early on, it was really important that all states start preparing. We have a good example where Ohio took a lot of steps early that everybody thought they were crazy on. And Ohio is actually doing better than most states right now. And this idea that we can have one government entity run all this, it, I've never seen it work. I, I think what we missed was we did not have the CDC out early forcefully providing guidance to the states. We had mixed messages where we've had the CDC doing this. If you go back and you look at H1N1, that was a relatively well-coordinated federal providing funding and policy and guidance and states doing implementation. And that worked pretty well. But when you took out the CDC and no longer had them as the primary voice for this, providing guidance, again, 
states were kind of left now to which way they go. And if you're relying upon tweets or the daily press conferences to figure out what you're going to do, it isn't going to work. So, Agreed. I, 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 so my question is, I, I get the Tennessee, and a lot of people said it, and I, I really have a bias against it because it may be inefficient, but trust me, 50 states, if they're not doing everything they can to try to control this, there's just not enough federal government to go around. But with the absence of the CDC, and that would be the question, if CDC had come out in late February, early March, with very strongly worded guidance of what needed to be done, and that was not being pushed back because it was going to scare people or blow up the economy, would we've had different outcomes in states? Because I don't know, you know, when you've got the business community and a lot of folks that are listening, particularly in my state, are listening to the president and they're going, you know, this isn't that bad. It's like the flu. Why are we going to shut down the state of Florida? So we ran spring break. And now Florida's cases are climbing. My home county, Gainesville, Florida, Lodgeville County, they made a decision two weeks for the governor actually finally issued a stay home order. They did one. And our numbers in Alachua County have stayed pretty flat. And we have the University of Florida. We had a lot of kids coming back. The university made decisions to tell them to go home. We're, we're, we're shutting down. So our big amplifiers, the university and college, the, the community college, did not reopen after spring break. And we did that. But this mixed messaging we were getting out of the administration, I think, leads to your concern. But if we don't have a consistent voice from the federal government, I also don't see this working. So there's going to be debate about that. I have my position. You will look at it differently. But I think what we're going to come back to is unless we have the health experts early on providing consistent guidance, we have consistent communication. I don't know if it's any better from the federal state level. We're still going to have a lot of things that we saw occur. Um, having listened to your last comment, how do you make sense of, of CDC's diminished role in this, in fact, their lack of visibility almost entirely. This is all looking externally and not having any ground truth. My impression is they spoke the truth and um, the administration didn't want to hear it. Uh, if you go back to the Washington Post did a really good article, HHS went in early for a couple of billion dollars, knowing that they were going to need a lot of capability and resource. And the Tea Party uh, folks that still are running at OMB said, no, we're still dealing with this. We're trying to do things cheap. And it would have been a small price to pay back then. But we have too many people that are looking, oh, this isn't necessary. This isn't, you know, this is, you guys are, you're blowing this up. And I think this is the thing that I've seen that's really, it's not even the Tea Party. It's this war on science that when we bring you science and data, but it doesn't fit your narrative, we dismiss it. And we've seen this in too many cases where with the narrative is anyway, not being supported so by the data, people attack the messengers. And so I think CDC and HHS went in early, said this is going to be bad. We need to do this. We're going to have big impacts. People were going, if you do that, you're going to freak out the economy. And our economy is what we're most concerned about. That's just from my outside looking in. Until we actually hear these conversations and get in there, we're not going to know. I thought it was telling that the Post has many people on the record and, and that were there saying, 
the money was asked for and was turned down and a big pushback that they were being alarmist and not utilizing them. And we've seen uh, other people emerge as the spokesperson, but I think CDC initially lost their credibility. And although now they have the CDC director doing a lot of radio interviews, particularly in rural areas, um, and really trying to combat the, the misinformation about the science. Uh, but you kind of miss this without that uh, focused guidance from CDC. You know, I work, for, I work for Governor Bush, I work for President Obama, and in all of the events we dealt with, he got briefed by the experts. He took the message that we said, this is the points we need to put out there, and I saw time and time again, whether it was Governor Bush or President Obama, they used the information that was provided to them by the experts to communicate and amplify that message. Okay, I need to, I, I've listened to a lot of what you have to say. My name is Dan D'Amico. I live in North Carolina. Um, and uh, how do you, you know, rationalize all the things you've just said about various administrations and the states and the lack of guidance with the fact that the worst city and the worst area hit in the United States is New York City and New York area and New Jersey. And at the time that these, uh, we were finally stopping flights from China, although we probably should have stopped from other places as well as was discussed earlier. You had the, the, the mayor of New York, the city manager standing up in press conferences and telling the citizens of New York City go out and party. Now, how can you blame that on any federal administration when you've got the city mayor and the manager and the governor all coming out and saying, hey, go party, go to Chinatown for the new year? That's, that's totally irresponsible. It was. And, I, I, just don't buy, the... I just don't buy everything that you're saying about all this stuff. The states couldn't have done a better job, and it's all because of the administration, and I take exception to that. Well, I take exception that I didn't say it with all the states and all the federal government. I said, without consistent messaging early, we got a variety of responses, and I didn't pick on answer, answer my question. Answer my question. Again, I didn't pick on any party. I think one of the things that we're going to go back and find is that some of the early decisions that were made in New York are part of the reason it got so bad so fast. Again, if you look at early on, those places that took early steps, they have been able to flatten the curve. And if those steps weren't taken, we've seen it explode. We can go down to New Orleans with a Democratic governor and a Democratic mayor. They had Mardi Gras. It is now blowing up across that region. So this was not by party. It was decisions that were made because it wasn't that bad yet. And we started to see that once you saw the first cases, it was too late. If you started seeing an endemic outbreak, you lost control. So we're seeing this. This isn't about party. It's about decisions that were made waiting for confirmation you had a problem before you did social distancing. And it wasn't going to keep up. And again, we depended upon states with CDC to identify protective measures early. This was something that was being discussed early, but because it wasn't implemented early, 
you lost containment. And this is going to affect Democrat and Republican administrations because where they did it early, they've had success. Where they waited till they had cases, they got behind and they lost containment. And so we're watching in South Florida, spring break decisions exploding. We're watching New Orleans grinding fast. We're seeing what happened in New York. And only after they implemented social distancing did weeks later we start seeing the numbers come down. Got it. Okay, let's go Hello. to Angelus with another question. Thank you. Yes, Greg, it's Ken DeAngelis in Austin. Thank yep. you for your, for your insights. My question relates to testing, and it has three parts. The first part is, how would you define testing at scale? What does that mean for the country? Secondly, how do we get there? And third, how long does that take? Well, testing at scale is the ability to test uh, not just people that are sick, but to start clearing people to go back to work. Uh, one of the suggestions that I've heard is we may not be able to test everybody, but can we go back in the key sectors and start testing enough employees to bring them back online versus being shut down? Um, and then do we have enough testing to test general areas that we've seen a lot of exposure? and then only move to testing individuals that are symptomatic or had exposure. So you're probably talking not thousands or hundreds of thousands, you're probably talking of the capability to do tens of millions of tests. And part of that testing has got to be about being able to test for antibodies because there is some evidence that people actually had COVID-19 before we had early indication that it was in areas. And if you test with the antibodies, they're seeing that that may provide some long-term relative to COVID of a year or more before we have a vaccine, but you would be relatively risk-free of redeveloping or passing on the virus. And then in key areas, we can test people who we know are not infected. We can bring them back online and we can start bringing parts of the economy on. Uh, but you're really talking about tens of millions of ability to test and the other thing, it needs to be rapid. You know, this where some of these tests, they're still having to go back and it's hours to days to find out. There's a lot of promising as people come out. There's actually some tests now that seem to be working fairly effectively. That would be working, you know, veritably. I could test you and you'll know within 30 minutes whether or not you are infected, not infected, or have antibodies. And then we can start using that to start getting people back in. But I think. The priority is going to have to be the healthcare industry, the frontline first responders, the people that are interfacing with the public right now that are currently working everything from the grocery stores to gas stations, whatever. Really need to get that workforce tested and screened and cleared who's sick, who's not sick, who's got antibodies, who doesn't have antibodies. And once you've got that kind of a base, you can start working back out. And if you start thinking about what we're going to have to do to restart things, you know, we just can't say open up businesses because we're going to have to have mass transit running. We're going to have to have a lot of the support industries that we, you don't really think about. But without them, you're not going to be able to come back. And so this is the I think it makes more sense to me on the first couple of groups. People have been in direct contact with patient care, people that have been out interfacing with the public responders, people that have been working out there. They're keeping the stores open, doing groceries. And once you've got that, we can start looking at the next groups to test, clear, and start putting back to work. Sounds good. 
Um, Howard, Howard Newman, let's go to you. You've been waiting a long time. Let's go to you for the last question. Thanks. I, I'm going to take it down to a much more personal level. Uh, get your counsel here. I've been in isolation since March 8th. Been to the grocery store once. We wash the stuff when it comes back in, blah, 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 right? So I'm pretty confident that I'm clean. My college roommate lives a month, a mile away. He's the same way. When is it safe for us to get together? Because, the, you know, we've been told we're going to be here for another month or so. Yeah. And as we heard the other day, people are beginning to go stir crazy. So what's your, what's your counsel for people who've been well-behaved? Would you bet your life on the other person? And if you're comfortable, again, what we're finding is as long as you can avoid the larger groups where this would spread from one person to multiple people, and you have good control and you're very comfortable that they've taken the same precautions, they have not been exposed to that, then that is probably okay. But remember, this is a judgment call. One of the challenges with COVID-19 are the super spreaders. They have the virus, they're shedding the virus, but they don't have symptoms or they have very mild symptoms and may not present as sick. And without testing, we don't know. And so if we're not able to test, then it's really your confidence that you're both doing the right things, that you guys getting together isn't really about bringing in unknowns or exposures. Um, so I, it's a judgment call. I don't think you can't do it. I just say it's a judgment call. I'll be honest with you. My mother-in-law lives with me. She's got congestive heart failure. Uh, we have a lot of family members who say, hey, we're, we're in isolation. We're saying, no, you're not. You went to the feed store. You've been doing this. You've done that. And there's just too much risk. My mother-in-law would not survive COVID-19. So we're just telling the family, you want to see our, my mother-in-law's name, Barbara. You want to see her, Skype, FaceTime, call her. Do not come over. It's just too much risk. We don't, and it's, it's our family, but we're saying you guys are doing too many things that we're not sure. It may seem innocuous, but there's just too much risk. So it's a judgment call. If you feel comfortable, you guys are doing the same thing, it's probably fine. But I think it's going to have to be a judgment call and how much you're sure they've done the same things you have. And particularly if you have any of the high risk factors, be very careful about that. And until we have testing, it's, it's a trust and judgment issue. Appreciate it. Great. That's a wonderful way to end. Craig, I, I thank you very much for your candor and your insights and your, your willingness to spend this time with us. You just heard Craig Fugate explain why pandemics are a fundamentally different beast than other disasters like a hurricane. This virus isn't just hitting one part of the country, it's hitting everywhere. And that's why Fugate believes Washington must play a stronger coordinating role and accelerate the work to roll out a massive national testing program. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.